Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Clifton Moe and Omar Nadim of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, US. Hello, my name is Omar Nadim and I am very pleased to be joined by Dr. Clifton Moe. So we are posed today, uh, Cliff, with the very pertinent uh, clinical question of how to treat first relapse in patients with multiple myeloma that are lenalidomide refractory. So uh, in patients that are lenalidomide refractory and first relapse, again, this is a population that we frequently uh, encounter in the clinic. So when we're choosing this therapy with the platter of options that we now have, um, you know, this is a question that clinicians always have as to which one to choose. Many of the trials were done, um, you know, in the relapse setting in patients that had one to three prime lines of therapy and a handful of those trials included patients with Len refractory myeloma. So, so it's very difficult sometimes, I think, to tease out which regimen is, is quote unquote the best or more, most efficacious in this population. Um, so, I think it's just to kind of start off the conversation, you know, I think most of us feel that patients' uh, factors, including, you know, their comorbidities and, and their prior toxicity to treatment, certainly plays into how we would choose a particular regimen. But, but Cliff, maybe if you want to lead us off with sort of your thought process in terms of uh, a typical patient with lender refractory myeloma, let's say they're progressing after four years transplantation and they've been on 10 milligrams of lenalidomide and now they're starting to show evidence of biochemical progression. Thanks, Omar. Yeah, so first things first, and it, it probably doesn't need to be said at this point, uh, but I think it's clear that triplet regimens are superior to doublet regimens uh, in pretty much every randomized study that you can think of in the myeloma space. Uh, there's a better response rate. There's uh, uh, significant progression-free survival improvement, uh, and in general, the, the toxicity profile of, of our triplet regimens is, is pretty manageable and, and favorable. Uh, so uh, in terms of the components of the triplet, uh, I think most of us are, uh, as more of a rule than the exception, uh, reaching for an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody uh, as one of the uh, partner drugs in patients who are CD38 naive, meaning those who didn't receive uh, an antibody in the first line. Um, and so I, I think that that is uh, probably the, the default uh, uh, first letter in the triplet would be an antibody. Uh, um, just very briefly, I think that the um, uh, SLAM F7 antibody elotuzumab, I, I personally see being used Know, less than maybe even it was a, a few years ago, uh, just because the CD38s, you know, are there's more potent antibodies. However, I, I, I do think that there may be a role for ELO still in patients who are kind of slow biochemical uh, progressors, maybe those who, you know, are at somewhat more of a, uh, you know, an, an infection risk. Um, but I think for the most part, we're reaching for the CD38s. And then uh, the real dilemma becomes uh, what, what to sandwich between uh, the antibody and the low-dose dexamethasone. Uh, and our options right now essentially still uh, include uh, imids, specifically pomalidomide, uh, which has been studied in lenalidomide failure, uh, and the proteasome inhibitors. Uh, and you know, essentially, we have um, um, three of them now that are, are, are FDA-approved. Uh, and multiple approvals for both uh, Velcade and Kyperlis uh, with the CD38s. So, so not to, not to 
answer this question entirely without letting you chime in, Omar, but I, I do think that the first question is, uh, you know, should we include an antibody? Uh, if so, which one? And the second question is, you know, should we be, you know, automatically class switching or reaching for a proteasome inhibitor? Um, or are there advantages in certain patients uh, to moving on to our you know, next generation imid pomalidomide um, without the class switch? Uh, and, and I think it's, uh, as with most things in myeloma, I do think it's becoming increasingly an individualized decision with pros and cons to, to, to all these different approaches. Yeah, no, that's very well said, Cliff. And I think kind of uh, piggybacking that point about what the partner is to CD38 antibodies. I mean, I think if you kind of break down the more commonly used regimens, I would say daratumumab with pomalidomide and dexamethasone is probably one of the most commonly used relapsed uh, regimens. And now we have, you know, phase three data to support its use. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, kind of using some of the more um, triplet regimens that are incorporating proteasome inhibitor, particularly carfilzomib. Um, you know, on paper, uh, based on the Candor study and now the Ikema study, which is looking at isotuximab, carfilzomib, dexamethasone, you're really seeing very high response rates, and you're also seeing very high rates of deep responses, including MRD negative disease in this relapsed population. And, and that is, you know, boding pretty well for uh, an improvement in progression-free survival, and, and, you know, I think that's very encouraging. So, again, kind of when you're faced with the patient in front of you and you're reviewing all this data, I think what I sometimes struggle with is, you know, how do you know which one's better and which one's the right choice for that individual patient if, if all things, other things being equal? So some of the factors that I might look for are, you know, is does the patient have any high-risk cytogenetics or is, are we dealing with potentially an earlier relapse than usual in patients coming off lenalidomide? In that case, you know, I do tend to favor a class switch approach because those patients with initial first-line therapy and continuous image-based therapy still relapse sooner than expected. So in that case, kind of changing the whole platform with a CD38 antibody and, and perhaps, you know, using uh, carfilzomib as a backbone with dexamethasone, I think, I think makes sense to me in that particular population. I think the more challenging population, as you pointed out, is the one that has, you know, the slow sort of biochemical progressors where you're starting to bring in even modifications of, of maintenance lenalidomide, for example. So, so historically, you know, there's been some uh, practices where you would, you know, increase the dose and, and maybe add another agent you know, to what the patient's already on if they're, you know, again, having a very slow progression. Is this something that you're doing now in clinical practice or are you just essentially switching everyone off of lenalidomide if they're coming off of maintenance therapy? In practice, I'm usually uh, switching uh, away from lenalidomide, uh, even in patients who are progressing through arguably a, a touch of lenalidomide, if you will, you know, low, low dose um, uh, maintenance. And part of the reason is because I do think that, uh, you know, even, even though it's not the same thing necessarily as being refractory to 25 milligrams of Revlimid when given with a proteasome inhibitor, I mean, I do think that there is, you know, biological uh, uh, resistance uh, to, to, to the drug. Um, and, you know, the question of, you know, how much more bang for our buck can we get comes, comes into play. Uh, and, and the other uh, aspect of that is just that we have more drugs. We have, you know, a, a, a fairly uh, full tool shed to, to pull tools out of now. And so, you know, it, on the principle of uh, kind of always trying to give our patients the best drugs at every, you know, uh, line of their therapy, uh, you know, it doesn't really make sense to me to try to milk everything we can out of ineffective lenalidomide uh, when there are 
you know, highly potent proteasome inhibitors, uh, arguably, you know, more potent, uh, uh, um, a more potent HEMID, and potentially coming down the pike not too far away are the probably even more potent uh, cell mods uh, that may uh, largely supplant um, uh, the current roles of the HEMIDs in, in the not too distant future, potentially. So, so I think that's my long-winded way of saying I, I tend to be, I tend to have a low threshold for abandoning lenalidomide when it doesn't look like it's uh, uh, doing a good enough job for, for my patients. Yeah, I totally agree that that's sort of my practice pattern as well. And I think kind of jumping uh, a bit to the toxicity of the salvage regimens, I think that is something to really keep in mind. You know, we have a lot of older patients with myeloma, particularly as they get more frail, you know, with, with more therapy and as they get older on maintenance therapy. So, you know, the cardiovascular risk that we see with, with carfilzomib, I think is definitely something to, to pay attention to when you're choosing the particular regimen. If a patient has tolerated an image-based approach for a long time and has some cardiovascular risk, I think it's very likely they'll tolerate and respond to a pomalidomide-based approach in combination with the monoclonal antibody. So, so I think looking at the cardiac risk factors, particularly with the carfilzomib dosing structure, you know, uh, being so variable, I think it is important to kind of individualize that piece of it with the patient. I just wanted to bring up that point since this is something that, you know, we do encounter in the clinic, not so, not so frequently. I don't know if you have any comments about that. Yeah, no, I think I'm as, uh, uh, I'm similarly as cautious as you uh, uh, using Kuiperless in, uh, I want to say elderly, but older patients with uh, known coronary disease, a known history of heart failure, or just really multiple concerning uh, cardiac risk factors, because I think it's, it's generally conceded that this is a real uh, signal in terms of the cardiotoxicity. I mean, in both uh, Ikema and, and Candor, the, the overall rates of clinically significant cardiotoxicity were, were low, you know, in the uh, uh, single digits and for the most part, the low single digits. Uh, but, you know, in the real world, uh, when you have, uh, you know, uh, an older patient with uh, heart disease um, and just anecdotally, you know, seeing kind of some car cardiac complications occur in patients and these, you know, unlike, uh, rash or neuropathy, uh, you know, a serious uh, um, cardiotoxic event is something that you can't really take back sometimes. So, so I am pretty uh, uh, cautious with that. Uh, that being said, though, you know, the, 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 the DKD and the ISOKD, uh, you know, efficacy data are so strong, uh, the uh, uh, toxicity profile of both of those regimens is is generally you know, pretty favorable. Um, and so uh, again, you know, I, I don't have a hard line rule of not giving Kuiperless to a patient with you know, any sort of cardiac risk factor. I just think you have to individualize it, right? Uh, have, a, have a conversation about the possible you know, risks and side effects of all the agents uh, that we have to choose from with the patient and, and kind of come up with a you know, individualized plan um, you know, based on our, our you know, assessment of the patient's best interests as well as their own assessment of, you know, what, what side effects and risks they're comfortable and not comfortable with. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I think just uh, maybe ending with this topic, um, you know, I think the answer, I think we're both pretty much on the same page in terms of using monoclonal antibodies as second line of therapy in either combinations with imidoprotism inhibitors, but I, I think we all can see what's ahead which is patients that are exposed to monoclonal antibodies in the first line and maybe on imid and 
you know, CD38 antibody maintenance and are having relapses. I think this is a population we're going to be treating very, very soon, um, uh, you know, in, in the clinic. So, you know, I think kind of thinking about approaches for that patient that's now double refractory, you know, in their first relapse, I think is going to be challenging. The good news is we have a lot of new agents on the horizon and, and you know, that have new targets, including DCMA-directed therapy that has made its way into the clinic. Uh, but, you know, I think that is something to, to maybe the answer is not going to be so straightforward and universal, you know, in the not so distant future. Yeah, I think we're uh, thinking the exact same thing. Uh, when we when I hear the term lenalidomide uh, refractory myeloma, you know, now, uh, you know, one of my first questions is, well, has the patient already gotten an antibody or not? And, you know, five years ago, that's a question that we weren't asking. But, but as, as we see, uh, you know, especially patients who are transplant ineligible, uh, you know, the large majority of them that, that we see are either getting, getting kind of an, an RVD light uh, regimen or they're getting DARA RD, right? Um, and so uh, it's, it's, I think it's pretty uh, apparent that uh, following a CD38 antibody with another CD38 antibody immediately after the first one fails is probably not a good way to go. I think that there's, um, uh, you know, evidence that there's, you know, minimal benefit, if, if any, coming in on the, you know, immediately on the heels of, of a CD38 failure. Um, but like you said, the good news is, is we have uh, uh, 15 FDA approved drugs for myeloma now. Um, you know, we, we have uh, other uh, partners uh, for uh, immens and proteasome inhibitors that have been studied um, in the triplet setting. Uh, obviously, we still have uh, elotuzumab that, that partners really well with Palm. Uh, as of uh, as of last December, I think we have Selenexor, which is now you know approved in combination with with Velcade in patients with uh, uh, at least one prior line, uh, and you know specifically patients who have high risk disease, 17p deletion. You know, I I, I do think that the data um, uh, from the Boston study are 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 fairly impressive uh, with, with Selenexor. So um, again, I, I don't think that every uh, patient is going to be um, out of uh, uh, highly potent triplet options necessarily, even if they come into their first relapse being IMID and CD38 exposed, or perhaps even IMID and CD38 refractory. Yeah, totally agree. I think we could probably end with that, right? Yeah, well, I think if we don't, we'll probably talk for the next couple of hours, meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Multiple Myeloma Hub podcast. We would also like to thank our supporters, Sanofi, Amvi, Bristol Myers Squibb, Genentech, GSK, Roche, Amgen, and Oncopeptides. Multiple Myeloma Hub podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.